worship team. Appreciate your singing, your help in worshiping God this way. Well, Brother Ted is not, uh, new to us. We have known him for years, and uh, he has been with us before. He is an assistant pastor here at Faith Baptist Church here in town, and for sure we appreciate very much uh, him coming and teach us and preach to us, and we appreciate you, Brother Ted, for coming. Just come on and bring the message that God lay in your heart. I'm sure we are blessing to to uh, to us. And for sure, I'm glad that he is coming because if it's not him, it will be me. <laughs> and I think it's, he will be here. Thank you, Ted. I appreciate Thank you. it. Thank you. God I'm happy to be here and glad to be, be able to be back. It's been a little while, and uh, I'm encouraged to be with you and to get to speak from uh, the book of Malachi. I'm just going, in my, when I get a chance to preach at Faith Baptist Church, I'm uh, speaking at a ch- out of the book of Malachi. So if you want to go there, uh, and this is just a sermon that I preached recently there, and I just figured I'd continue on in that uh, as, as we go today. So it may not be a familiar book to you. The easiest way to find Malachi is you open your Bible to Matthew and turn back two pages. And Malachi is the last book in the New Testament. Malachi is divided into seven different, um, really, messages or dialogues between the people uh, of Israel and God. And God basically accuses them, or they accuse God of, of doing wrong, and the people talk back to God, and he, it's this dialogue, kind of like a conversation, that's going on between God and these people. It's very interesting. In, in the first chapter in Malachi, the people of Israel are like, God, how have you loved us? What have you done? Am I, everything good there? Got it? Okay. I always mess up the mic. So. The sound guy is underappreciated and and uh, so I always appreciate him because I've been stuck in the sound booth so many times so thank you uh, so the first chapter of Malachi is is the people are accusing uh, they're accusing God of not loving him or not loving them and God says look I've loved you over every other person I've uh, I've loved you over every other nation then God says uh, or they say, how have we dishonored you? What have we done to dishonor you, God? And they say, uh, and God talks back to them and tells them, look, you've brought lame sacrifices and offerings. Really, one of the problems the people were doing is they actually get these animals and they take uh, these offerings to God and they have broken legs, they are blind, they're terrible sacrifices. And God's saying, you're showing me that you don't love me because you're bringing me the worst instead of the best. Third, or in the second chapter, the priests, they allowed these people. God says, hey, look, you're the leaders. You're the, you're the ones that should be leading this, and, uh, and you're the ones causing the problems. And unfortunately, uh, God rebukes them there. In, in chapter 2, he goes on. The people had been marrying false, or, or the people had been divorcing their wives, going off and marrying women uh, that followed false gods. And they follow these people that are, or they're going after people that hate God. And God says, look, you're wicked for doing that, right? And then he says in, ver- in chapter 3, where we're going to look at today, and just beyond that, these people had been worshiping God the wrong way. They had given up on him, and they stopped, uh, God's accusing them of robbing him. And so we're going to look in verse 6 through verse 12. We're going to see how the people were robbing God. But we're going to talk a little bit about, about something different. And when you see something about God robbing or people robbing God, it would be 
may be a little shocking to hear. But we're going to actually talk about God, our unchanging God today. You know, nobody really likes change. I mean, you woke up this morning and your clocks either automatically changed or every one of them in your house needed to be adjusted. I think I changed the one on the microwave, but there's probably like 73 others that I'm going to have to change sometime uh, during. There, there's something I'm going to have to change them sometime during the week. All these different clocks that, that we wind up, that I'm going to wind up looking around the house and saying, oh yeah, that one. And once daylight savings times ends sometime in the fall, some of my clocks will be right again. And so we sometimes just don't like change. Sometimes we love change. You go to somebody's house and they've rearranged the furniture, you know, the 15th time in the, in the year and you think, what's going on? And if your spouse likes to do that to you, I'm sorry, you're probably going to hit your knees on it for the next few days. Sometimes we love change. Sometimes we don't like change. When we look at these verses, though, one of the things that's very, that we'll see right away is the Lord does not change. And we're going to look at this and understand this through this passage and see how God uh, talks through this. And we'll see this here. Let's read, or I'll read Malachi 3, 6 through 12. And you just follow along as I read this. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you've not turned aside from my statutes. You've kept them. Return to me, and I, re- I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. Verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The first, I wanna, first thing I want to look at is actually in verse 6 and 7. And we're going to see this, the first point I'm going to give is this. God's faithfulness gives hope to the wayward. God's faithfulness gives hope to the wayward. God is so faithful, and his unchanging nature gives us hope. God never changes, is what he says in Malachi 3, 6. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. He says, what, so you want to, it's almost like we're asking a question. If, you've, if, if somebody's ever come to you and said, do you want to know the good news or the bad news? And you sometimes will say, well, well, tell me the bad news first because let's get that out of the way. Or, or whatever, whatever we are, your, you know, your disposition is to ask, answer that question. Well, God's saying something almost here. Let me tell you the good thing first. The good thing is I never change. I never change. In theology, we call this God's immutability. And this is how God doesn't change. He changes, He doesn't change, and this is how we understand that in a few ways. First, we know that God is unchangeable in his person and his character. In his person and his character, God never changes. Hebrews 10, 1, 10 through 12 says this, And Lord, uh, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. In the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you will remain. They will all wear out like garments, like a robe, you will roll them out up, 
like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. God never changes. Later on in Hebrews, it says in, in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Second, we know God never changes in his purpose and plan. God's character stays the same. His person stays the same. But his plan doesn't change. His decree or his purpose. Now, if you're a parent, or, or actually if you're a kid, you probably understand this uh, well. Sometimes parents change plans, right? They say, hey, we're for sure on spring break week, we're going to do something fun, and we're going to go somewhere, or we're going to, whatever's going to happen. And then, all of a sudden, work says you can't get off. Or the week goes by so quickly, you don't wind up doing anything fun. And what do the parents or the kids say? You promised, right? You promised me that this was going to happen. And, and what do the parents say? Well, hey, something came up. Plans change, right? God never changes in his plans or his decrees. God is always and for always has known what he's going to do in his plan. Psalm 33, 11 says this, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. God extends his, his redemption, his redemptive plan to all people, and it will not change forever. Philippians 1, 6 says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is working for redemption in us and throughout this world, and his plan won't change. It's not going to change. But third, God is unchanging or immutable in his revealed truth, his affirmations, and his promises. God is not subject to the change of mind. And now, uh, now this could be a, a long uh, discussion on theology, but I'm just going to throw this out there. God doesn't change his mind, his decree, and his plan. And we know this because the Bible says it. It says in Numbers 23, 19, God is not man, praise the Lord, that he should not lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Isaiah 54.10 says, For the mountains may depart, and the hills removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on, me, on you. God says to Israel, I'm not going to change, and I'm not going to stop loving you, and I'm going to have compassion on for you. And if I could tell you one thing, if you would remember this today, God never breaks his promises. No matter, no matter what, God never breaks his promises. You may think, man, my parents' plans changed for spring break. My, my boss told me I would get a promotion or whatever it may be. And, and you think those plans changed. We, are, we live in a world of broken promises. God never changes and he never breaks his promises. But the bad news in Malachi 3.6 is this. It says in Malachi 3, 6 and 7, or verse 7, From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes, and you've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So, since we know God is unchanging, since God is, never changes, we know that he is always ready to forgive. God's always ready to forgive. Now, when we look at when we look in Malachi chapters, uh, when we look in verse chapter three, verse seven, it says, "From the days of your father, you've turned aside. 
You've messed, you've messed up. You've sinned against me. And so the bad news for Israel is that they've sinned. They've turned from God. They've disobeyed him. And that's bad news when people disobey. But God says, I am willing for you to return to me. Here's what we want to learn from this passage and one of the keys that we're going to focus on. Now, we read it, and you may have heard the word tithe, and you think, man, he's going to preach on giving. And Pastor Jeremy probably wanted him to come preach about giving. We didn't talk about that at all when we talked for half an hour. You know what I wanted to preach just from this is what we've been going through is, is an encouraging thing to me that God doesn't change, but he's always ready to forgive. And Israel was here saying, uh, God's saying to them, return to me. But they asked this question at the end of verse 7. How shall we return to you? It's almost like, what have we done? We didn't do anything. God, I don't know. We've been sitting here in the promised land, and we haven't done anything wrong. We're good. I mean, we still every once in a while bring you a sheep or a lamb that's blind or lame. I mean, every once in a while we tithe to you or give. I mean, we, we are maybe not as devoted as we never ever were, but, you know, we are still living in the same place. So, God, we haven't changed. It's got to be you, God. Let me say, whenever you start thinking that in your mind, that God's changed and he needs to come close to you, probably it's a heart that we need to actually surrender to him and come back to him. I have this dog, and uh, he's somewhat insane, okay? He, he is uh, he's probably some kind of German short hair pointer or some kind of pointer mix, right? And he's a stray that we found and got him trained to do some different things. And uh, I, I like to go to his empty field, and, I, and so he can just run and burn energy. And so I have these Frisbees that I throw as far as I can. He gets them and runs back to me after he does like 73 laps. And, uh, you know, he's just kind of clinically insane, it seems like, because he's just got so much energy. And, and one of the times we are there, and a rabbit runs out of, this, of the bushes right there that were nearby, and, th- and he just takes off as fast as he can after this rabbit. And I'm, like, thinking, you know, he's gone, right? I mean, it's, like, hundreds of yards in seconds, right? They're just so fast. And I've got this collar, right, that, that we train him with, a training collar, and you beep it, and they hear this beep, and they're supposed to come back. And you buzz it, or you can even shock if they need to. And I start to realize he can't hear me. And, and I'm yelling, or I'm trying to beep it, and he's beelining in after this rabbit as far as he can, right? And, and I beep it, I try and buzz him, and I start to realize, I think he's out of range. He's not coming back, right? How's he going to return? And I'm over here like, hey, come back, bud. His name's Tex. Tex, come on, right? Come back here. He doesn't care. He's running after this rabbit as fast as he can. This is almost like Israel. They're running away from God. They're like, God, we don't, we're not listening to you. We don't care. In fact, you can say it as loud as you want. We're not listening. I mean, we're out of range. We, we're not going to come back. And if you wonder, eventually he lost track of the rabbit, came back, and we played Frisbee, but he was pretty tired. Reality is, though, we often stray from God. We often, in our heart, in our disposition, in our actions, in our attitude, we turn from him. And God, even in the Old Testament, always gave opportunities for people to return to him. And in the New Testament, we see it so clearly. It says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God wants to restore. God wants to forgive. So you may be at a place today and be thinking, I've ran too far. I'm out of range. I've sinned. And it's too much. And God is always calling and saying, come back to me. My steadfast love remains forever. My steadfast love remains forever. Israel had a similar problem to the problems we face. We often don't think our sin is a big deal. We sometimes don't even acknowledge that we've turned from it. But God expects us to obey. Look in verse 8. God expects obedience to all his commands. In verse 8, we're going to see God expects obedience to all his commands. In verse 8, it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? God says to them, In your tithes and your contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, God, God's, the people are saying, how do we return to you? I mean, if God, how do we return to you, especially if we haven't done anything wrong, is what they're thinking. God says, I mean, they've already given terrible sacrifices. They've been off marrying women of false gods. They've been just basically rebelling completely against God. But they're saying still, where, where's the problem? And God says, the problem is that you haven't actually given the tithe to me. You failed to submit to me as your Lord. They say, will, it says, will a man rob God? I mean, just, to th- just think about this question. God asking, will a man rob God? I mean, we would say, like, no, there's no way I can rob God, right? I mean, he's in heaven. He's got his possessions up there. He's got, you know, all, this, all these riches. How could I rob him? Well, the problem is they haven't recognized the issue that their heart and their life is completely turned against him. They're blind to their own sin. They can't see their problem. I went with my wife to a marriage conference one time. She loves hearing about this because, uh, you know, it's at, the be- at this marriage conference at the beginning. They say, would you write down on a scale of one to, get one to ten how good your marriage is? And I wrote down something like an eight or a nine, thinking, like, my marriage is great. It's just in a tremendous place, maybe even a ten. But I'm just going to write eight or nine because I'm at a marriage conference. Maybe I could use some work. And, she, and, I, and then we talked later. They say, hey, talk and discuss the number. And she wrote down, like, a three, maybe two and a half, whatever it was. And, and obviously, we had a different view of things. I was blind to the problems we had. I was blind to my own sin. And let me tell you, it's now a nine, and she would agree. Or maybe we should go back, and I'll see where it is. But sometimes we don't understand the problem. We think, God, I have no problems. I'm good. There's nothing wrong. But God's saying to these people here in Israel, you've robbed me. And they say, how could we even do that? But we know God owns everything. God owns everything, and in the Ten Commandments, which Israel would have known well, they would have heard the Eighth Commandment that says, you shall not steal. We could, Some of us could probably even quote all the commandments, and we would understand we're not going to steal. We shouldn't steal from other people. But when, they say, when God says, you're robbing me, it's a pretty serious charge. And we know God owns everything. Psalm 24, 1 through 2 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God owns everything. 
and Israel thought that their land belonged to them. And their tithe, or their money, their property, everything but belonged just to them. And they didn't have any responsibility to God. But God's pointing out to them, I own everything. And the tithe that you give to me shows your heart. It's not about the money. It's not so God can get rich. He already owns everything. But God says, give back to me so that you will show that you actually honor me as Lord, that you depend on me. Sometimes we get this thought, I have all this. I work so hard. I do everything I can to get all my possessions. And we think it's all on me. But we forget God owns everything and he's given it to us. And so we treat it with respect. We treat what he has given to us with respect and give it back to him, the owner. And he tells, uh, and is, he tells Israel here to tithe, to give back. Now, I could go and on and talk for a long time about the tithe. The tithe simply means a tenth. It simply means a tenth. And we can talk about the New Testament. I don't necessarily believe that New Testament talks about giving a, a clear tithe, but I think it's a clear that we give a grace giving to him, but we give back to God in a way that's over and abundant what he's given. So 10% sometimes is like, oh, that's all we gave. But Israel oftentimes gave above and beyond that. Every third year, they gave to the foreign or the sojourners. They often, if you thought about what they gave, it may have been more like 20 to 30% of their income, depending on the year. And you may think, man, that's crazy. Well, the reality is God was asking them to give simply to show that he was their Lord. When they didn't give, it was a reflection of their heart saying, you don't deserve what I have, God. I control it, not you. And when we give back to God, it shows our heart that we are surrendered to him. Greed ruins a relationship with God. In verse 9, it says this, You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation. Now, when we looked in, if we looked in Malachi at the beginning, we would see that some of the nation had had fallen away from God because they were the priests. They were supposed to be offering acceptable worship. Some of the people had gone off and married uh, people that weren't following God. Some of them had divorced their spouses in, 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 in unbiblical manners and married false, uh, false worshipers. And we see this as a problem for pockets of Israel. But God says to this in verse 9, the whole nation of you has robbed me. Every person. There was a problem with greed and selfishness. Instead of having this beautiful relationship with God, where they interacted with him and worshiped him and gave back to him, instead, they thought they deserved a blessing with God. And they said, God, where's the stuff that we deserve because we're your chosen people? They're thinking, we deserve it because we're your people, so just bless us, and we don't have to do anything. And God's saying, no, this is a relationship where you give back to me because I'm your Lord and I love you with steadfast love. And so repent and return to me. When we see it says, in verse 9, it says, you're cursed with a curse. Sometimes we think in our modern day or we think this idea of a curse, like well, we may think, oh, I'm going to curse you or somebody puts a spell or a hex on somebody, which, which isn't at all what God's talking about. God had promised to bless Israel. And when he promised to bless Israel, that was a tremendous, incredible blessing. 
And when they disobeyed, God simply removes their blessing. God simply says, You're, uh, they, they fail to give, and they sometimes go through a drought. They sometimes had trouble. And that was the idea of the curse. They were struggling, and they're saying, God, where's the good stuff? And God's saying, you're not even worth me. You don't care. You don't love me. They're thinking, God, you said you would put us in this land that was a land flowing with milk and honey. That was going to make us a great nation. And here we are. We've been captured. We've been taken away. We've had all these problems. God's saying, the problem is not with me. The problem is with you, that you don't worship me. But when we look in verse 10, 11, and 12, it helps us bring back to that idea of God and his unchanging attitude of steadfast love and his desire to always forgive and care for us. Look what he says. God, in verse 10 through 12, we're going to see this third point. God delights in blessing his people. God delights in blessing his people. Verse 10, it says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord, if, uh, Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. Your vine of the fields uh, shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of light, says the Lord of hosts. We know in Scripture, in Deuteronomy 6.16 and other places, it says don't put God to the test. And basically, don't put God to this unfair, unjust test. As men, we sometimes test other people or test things. God says don't put me to the test. But really here, God's simply saying, the way he's using this is saying put me to the test. By saying, if you, if you do the things that I've asked you to do, I'll do the things that I've promised you to do. Saying, look, if you simply do what I've asked by worshiping me, caring for me, giving to me properly, then I'm going to give to you the way that you expect. That's the test. The test is not simply saying, is God going to fulfill his promises? God's saying, I always fulfill my promises. I'm always going to do this. And so we know that God will reward obedience. And he's saying, I want, to, I, I want you to put, uh, put me to the test. Now, uh, let me just, we're talking in the New Testament. None of us have probably gone out and made sacrificial uh, sacrifices at an altar and those kind of things. So we're in the new, uh, new covenant. We're in a new time, right? The New Testament, and we're talking to New Testament believers, we operate under a, a different system. Now, Israel gave to God, and he would bless them. Now, you may give to the church this Sunday or next Sunday, or you may say, hey, I'm going to take out a big part of my savings account and give to some building project. You shouldn't look at that and say, man, God is going to just all of a sudden double that in my bank account. Magically, next week, if I take $1,000 out and give it to the church, I'm going to get 2000 back. That's not how it happens, right? That's not how that worked. But God's saying to Israel, he's saying, give to me, and I'm going to over and abundantly give back to you. Now, they were under a, a, in a different time, and they would have received this back. But for us, we simply give, and we know God is going to richly bless us. And that may sometimes come in form of material things on this earth, but chiefly, when we talk in the New Testament, God blesses us with rich spiritual blessings that we're going to have in eternity. Now, we may be able to, uh, God may bless us with a good job or a wonderful income. Those are wonderful things. 
But if they're taken away, we don't say, God hates us. We don't say, God, where are you? We simply understand this time we, we are called to be faithful to God no matter what. We're called to be faithful to him. But he does tell Israel, I will give back to you. I'll protect your crops. The devourer is not going to come. Some pest or locust isn't going to devour your crops. The things aren't, your fruit's not going to become overripe and fall to the ground. God says, I'm going to take care of you. The question for, the question for us is how do we care or how do we respond to God when he asks for us to, to honor him? Does God have your time, your talents, and your treasure? Do you honor God with how you spend your time? Do you honor God with how you spend your treasure, the, the money that you make? The talent that you have, the gifts that God has given you, are you using them for God? Are you simply saying, God, I expect you to do great things for me, and I'm just going to sit here and do nothing for you because I really don't care. But I really hope you give me everything my heart desires. We've got a messed up view of who God is. But he says in verse 12, all nations will call you blessed. You will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts emphasizes God, this God of angel armies, this God of all creation. And he's stronger and more powerful than all the nations around them. And even though these people had been captured, the Israelites had been captured, that had been taken away, they'd been bullied by other nations, God's saying, I the Lord of hosts can protect you. I, the God of this universe, can bless you. And I can make your nation great. Your nation is not going to be great, and we're talking about Israel back then. They're saying, he, he was saying, Israel's going to be great, not because of what you do, but because of me making it that way. And he says, so submit to me and follow me. When we look in the New Testament, what we know God will bless us, and sometimes God does wonderful things in our nation. Sometimes God does wonderful things in our country. But if our country fails, and if, we, if, if sometimes we struggle, it's okay. God has called us to be faithful to him no matter what. These people had turned to God, and they had apostatized from him. They struggled. And individually, these people had turned from God, and they weren't steadfast in their love to God and their obedience to him. Sometimes we think, God, you moved far from me, not me from you. But that's wrong. And when we look at this verse, Malachi 3, 6, and we see that God is unchanging, it gives us so much hope. Because we understand God's love never changes, and he's steadfast and endures forever. Think of this story in the New Testament. It says this in Luke 15, 17 through 23, and you probably know this. Probably, we'll look at that in just a second. But you can think about this in, in the, of, of the prodigal son. You may remember this son asked his father, Dad, give me everything that's owed to me. Give me a tenth, or give me, or give me my treasure, my inheritance, right? And what's he do? He takes that inheritance, and he goes out, and he spends it. He wastes it, and when he's got a lot of money, he's got a lot of friends. When, when he doesn't have a lot of money, he's got a lot of pigs, and he hangs out with them. He's trying to do some kind of bad work, 
And in his misery, he sits there and he thinks, man, even being a servant of my father would be much better. What's he say in Luke 15, 17, it says this. When he came to himself, talking about the prodigal son, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father's house, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. When we look at that story, we think, what a crazy idea that that kid had, to take his inheritance and run and spend it and just completely disobey. But you know what was never lost on that prodigal son's mind? What was never lost is that has his father was loving and compassionate and always ready to forgive. And he was, he, he, when we see in the story, his father's there sitting on the porch, waiting, looking, and he sees his son so far off and runs to embrace him. Sometimes we are in that position, and we look at God and we think there's no way that he wants us after we sin. There's no way that he still loves us or cares for us. But Malachi 6 says, our God is an unchanging God. He wants to restore. And he says, in the end of this verse, he tells Israel, look, I want to bless you. And we see it in the New Testament. God is always ready to forgive. He's always ready to restore. And when we think of that prodigal son, there with his hands open, looking there, off into the distance, ready to restore his son, even before his son even realized it. Before his, wor- his son even said any words, I'm sure his father's thinking, I'm ready to forgive. I'm ready for you to be part of this family. You may be here and may be struggling. You may have fallen into sin and temptation or given in to temptation. You may have just said, you know what, God, I'm not prioritizing you the way that I should. I'm not giving you the first place. Other things have taken a priority over my life. You may be embarrassed. You may be like, God, I can't can't ask for forgiveness. Or you may think, you know what, God, I've asked forgiveness for this so many times that you're not wanting to forgive me. And I would say our God is unchanging. He wants to forgive. So you go to him, and you confess your sins, and you make your relationship right with him, and you understand, God, thank you for being an immutable God, one that never changes, that is always ready with his steadfast love to forgive and restore. This is a message that we see in the Old Testament, a message of God's forgiveness and restoration in the New Testament, and it's a message that we can give to our friends and our families and neighbors, and people around us. We have a God that is willing to forgive, to restore, and give us hope for the future. So let's go out 
to share our great Savior, Jesus Christ, and his love for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that you are an unchanging and constantly faithful God that is always ready to forgive and restore. Lord, thank you that even in the Old Testament, in a passage that we may not read often, that maybe seems obscure, in Malachi, Lord, we we don't look at this often, but yet, Lord, we see how clear it is that you love us and you are ready to forgive and restore. Lord, help us as as we look to you, our unchanging God. Help us to surrender our hearts. Help our lives to be submitted to you. Lord, those here that are struggling, Lord, with sin that they think is a barrier between you, I pray that they would work to have that uh, forgiven, that they would they would surrender their heart to you and ask for forgiveness. Lord, for those that have not used their time and talents and treasures wisely, they've maybe hoarded them up for themselves, I pray that they would see their need to submit to you and give. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be uh, encouraged by this passage because we see how good and unchanging you are. Lord, thank you for your steadfast love that never changes. Help us to run to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.